We are in the tested series. We did Tangled and the Seven Deadly Sins. We're doing Tested and the Path to the Cross in this Lenten season. And Easter Sunday morning, I'm going to start Transformed. And what I'm going to do with the Transformed series is starting Easter, we're going to start looking at the Holy Spirit and his work in the life of the believer, particularly from Acts chapter 1, and find out what God is up to in our lives, changing us from glory to glory into the image of his Son. Today, the test is abandonment. Jesus was abandoned by his disciples. I can't really say that I have been abandoned in my lifetime. I don't feel like I have been abandoned, although I did witness a couple of my brothers being abandoned. Uh, my 13-year-old brother, John, says that he beat on the back of the motorhome as we left the service station, that he hollered at us. I certainly did it here, and nobody else in the motorhome heard him. We didn't know he was missing even until the police stopped us on the interstate. Say, what did we do wrong? Well, this, is this, you know this guy here? Oh, yeah, John. That was a little embarrassing. Even worse, Andrew's, raise your hand, Andrew. This is Andrew, the son of the young seven-year-old Danny who was led out to sell Christmas candy for a needy family, us, along with all of us. I mean, there were seven sons, and we were going down through the Subdivision, and we all loaded up in the car, headed out of that part of El Paso. We were on Scenic Way, which is up on the mountains, looking back at the lights just starting to come on when we realized, Danny's not here. It's still in my mind when we finally got back to that subdivision, seeing Danny there with his feet in the gutter, sitting on the curb, looking so desolate, having been abandoned by his family. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? I told myself it would never happen to me. But I was sitting comfortably in my living room watching TV when the phone rang one Sunday night, and I wondered who that might be. I answered the phone, and I hear, Dad? It's Joshua, my six-year-old. And I realized we'd left him at church. He'd fallen asleep in the front pew. We turned out all the lights. I asked him about this a couple weeks ago. I said, how did you ever find the light? He said, well, you know, we knocked out that wall, and I could see it kind of glimmering on my way there, and I knew our phone number. So you get abandoned now and then, even accidentally. And you remember these events now, don't you? When the family forgot you, you remember. You may have been thinking, are they coming back for me? Jesus is on the way to the cross. He's had this very intentional meal with his disciples. He wants them to feel the unity of the group, that they are together in this. He wants them to know how much he loves them. And we've already seen some of the abandonment that took place in the hours that followed that meal. There was... The arrest, where Judas betrays him with a kiss. There was the young man, we noted, who was wearing only that linen garment following Jesus, who fled out of the garden naked when they tried to grab him. Now, verse 66 of Mark 14. After everybody has sort of left him and fled, 
while Peter was below in the courtyard and Jesus was in the second floor of the high priest's house on trial, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow's one of them. Again he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. We have the heartbreak of the abandonment of Jesus in the greatest hour of his trial by the people who knew him best and were closest to him. The heartbreak of having Judas turn on him. Jesus says when he comes up in the garden, are you going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas, is that what you're going to do? Exactly what he did. And then when the pressure came on, all of the disciples fleeing into the city, seeking cover for themselves while Jesus was arrested. And here, his chief disciple, leader of the band, denying that he knew the Lord, denying that he was one of the group, denying that even though he had that Galilean accent, that he even knew Jesus. Luke records that when Peter was sitting at the fire, Jesus looked through and made eye contact with him. And Luke says it was at that moment Peter came to himself and went from that place and wept bitterly. Abandonment is like that. Jesus went to the cross alone because his friends were gone. The friends suffered as well. I have seen abandonment in a spouse. Her husband said to her, Semper Fidelis, always faithful. I was there when she found out he wasn't. And I've heard that cry of abandonment from the heart of someone who made a covenant and the covenant was broken. Maybe you have experienced that as well and you know what I'm talking about when I talk about the test of abandonment. It tests everything 
about you. I have seen children abandoned by their parents. In fact, a Tulane psychiatrist, Charles Zena, has written a book, Romania's Abandoned Children, in which he does neurological studies on the brains of these children who are abandoned as toddlers. And it is very clear, the color photos he passed around, and I looked at them, that abandonment in the toddler stage of life affects the brain development of a baby. Maybe they catch up later, particularly if they enter a nurturing environment. But it actually is neurologically damaging to a baby, an infant, a toddler, to be abandoned by those who are supposed to love them. Years ago, a lady in my church told me her story. She said, when I was 12, my parents and I passed through Las Vegas, and they dropped me off beside the road and said they would return. She said, I stayed there for hours. In fact, I slept in the dumpster that night, but they never came back. Abandonment tears at your heart. It leaves a deep wound. It does so because we're supposed to be united. The servant girl says, you are one of them. You're one of them. And it's true about Peter. He's one of them. He's taken up the identity of the group. You're with Jesus the Nazarene. Yes, sir. I'm with Jesus the Nazarene. That's who I am. He had proudly said it before. He had proudly followed Jesus. He had boldly said, though everybody forsakes you, I never will, but this little girl put pressure on him in a difficult situation, and under the trial, he broke, and he disassociated with the one that he said he loved. You are one of them. The tag Nazarene was pejorative. It was meant to be an insult. Nazareth was a little bitty community of carpenters like Joseph and Jesus, not an intellectual center like Jerusalem, not the center of the country and the center of their religion. And so when Jesus is suggested that he might be the Messiah, the response is, well, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? They tag the movement with the Nazarene label. When Paul the Apostle is tried by the governor Felix in Caesarea Maritima, I have stood where the ruins of that palace built by Herod the Great look over the Mediterranean Sea. When the lawyer stands up to accuse him, the lawyer says to the governor, this man here, Paul, he's a troublemaker. He's been stirring up riots over all the world in regard to Jesus, this sect of the Nazarene. He's part of the Nazarene sect. When Paul responds to the lawyer, he says, I am a follower of the way that you call 
a sect. You got the label, see. It's still a little bit of an insult for some people to connect you with Jesus. If you're in the classroom, if you're in the boardroom or the break room, somebody might just bring up, now, are you one of those religious fanatics? Are you somebody who believes Jesus rose from the dead? I mean, Easter's coming, all right? I got a gift one day as a reporter at the Times-Picayune when Easter came. A man now dead drew me a picture of a rabbit crucified on a cross. It was his Easter gift to me. There's still a little bit of that in there, a little sand in it. So, you're a follower of Jesus. You believe in Jesus, the Nazarene, you know. Not quite the center of academia, not quite the center of political power in the world, just a little off the bubble, just a few degrees off center. Are you one of them? Are you one of them? You affiliated with him? You connected to him? If you made a commitment to him? Are you part of the team? Did you buy the line, the kingdom of heaven is coming? Repent and believe the gospel? Is that what you swallowed? Have you, have you received that as your great purpose on the planet? Have you bought in to the notion that God is at work in the world? Have you found your place in the team? Do you know where you fit? Do you feel the unity with other believers? All of that Peter felt. All of that the disciples felt together. When she said, you are one of them, you betcha, she got it right. He was one of them. He believed. He believed Jesus was the answer. To whom shall we go, he said. You alone have the words of eternal life. If not already one day, some inconspicuous person who has no power over you will ask you the question of your identity and association and commitment to Jesus of Nazareth. And you will have the opportunity to crawfish if you'd like and not take the label. You can turn it down. You can be, hey, you can say, ah, That's, nah, just like Peter did. And you don't know when the test will come. Maybe that's why the denial happens. When Peter signed up, he didn't have as much information. When Jesus said, drop your nets and follow me, he said, yes, and he went just like you when you were a child, when you were a teenager or young adult, 
when you first heard the good news that God could forgive your sin through the work of Christ upon the cross, you signed up too with enthusiasm. Said, yes, I'll follow him. But you really didn't know where the path would lead, did you? Because at some point, your commitment to the radical Jesus of Nazareth tests your other commitments in the world. At some point, the choice comes up before you about will you take the label? Will you identify with Jesus as Lord? And you really don't know how much your affiliation costs you till the choice is put before you. There are Christians today sleeping, eating, and meeting 24-7 in a new church building in Wenzhou, a port city on the east side of China. Thousands of them have built a human shield around this church that the city officials say is unsafe and after just being constructed, they want to tear it down. And the people say in this province in China, they don't want crosses lifting up in the sky, prominent examples of the Christian faith. In fact, the officials there say that Christianity is growing in an unsustainable rate the article said that I read. Yeah, it is. It's out of control. And we got to stop it. And we want to bring this church down. And there are Christians who have chosen in a country that is officially atheist to stand in front of the church and take what may come. That's their choice. Because Jesus is their Lord, and the cross is the symbol, not only of what Jesus gave for us, but what we must give for him as well. And someday the choice comes, and you're faced with the decision. Are you his or not? Are you one of them? I detect by the way you talk that you're a Galilean. And the opportunity to deny is right there in front of you to back up into the cover of darkness and to blend in with the patterns on the wall, not to stand out, not to be true, not to say, yes, that's who I am. When you are abandoned. Everything about you is tested. It may be the greatest test of life when somebody who's supposed to love you leaves you. I had a woman tell me once when I told her God loves her, she said, why should God love me? Nobody's ever really loved me something about the human element, human relationships, something about true friendship and mutual loyalty, that when it is broken in the human family, when somebody who's supposed to love you, a spouse or a parent, abandons you, 
It strikes at the very core of who you are. It wounds you as deeply as your soul can go. And you wonder if you can recover. And sometimes you ask the question, does God love me? Does God care for me given that all my friends are gone? Given that the people who were supposed to love me left? Given that I've been abandoned like this? Does God really love me? And we identify a truth in that because Paul says when he was ill, when he was despondent, when he was in despair, God comforted him through the coming of Titus. It was God who comforted him with this human messenger, Titus. And it shakes us to the bone when no Titus comes. It shakes our faith. Maybe the greatest test of your faith that will ever come your way is when you are abandoned by somebody who's supposed to love you. People, I see that in Jesus when he walks this road. I see him being tested in his commitment to the cup, to the path his father chose. As Judas leaves, then Peter leaves, then they're all gone. Abandonment was part of the cup he drank. His abandonment became more and more evident from the arrest to the trial to the Via Della Rosa to the cross until hanging on the cross he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I realized as I read that again this week, not only did Jesus drink the cup of abandonment but the father who loved him drank it too why why invite this sorrow and pain into your life Peter goes out weeping that's the conclusion of it all he is a broken man the King James said he wept bitterly who is he now that he has denied the Lord? Who is he? The next thing we hear of him, he's going fishing. He tells the group, I'm going fishing. He has discarded the life with Christ. He has decided that his abandonment is permanent. He cannot be that person that he thought he could be. He has left that behind. Who is he but who he used to be? He's going back to the life he had. He's going to be a fisherman again. That's all he knows to do. Now that he has denied the Lord, he thinks it's permanent, this thing that's happened in him. For Judas, it was. Instead of going fishing or doing something else, Judas hung himself, but Peter, Peter ended up on a lake where Jesus could find him. Jesus corralled his disciple. Jesus built a fire on the seashore. He served them breakfast that morning after they brought in their catch. 
And then beside this other fire, Jesus asked three questions of the chief disciple who denied him three times. For the young girl's accusation, you're with that Nazarene Jesus. Jesus asked Peter across the fire, do you love me? For her other accusation, you're one of them. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? For the group around the fire that said, you must be one of them, you're a Galilean. Jesus asked a third time, Peter, do you love me? It was his call back that I'm not through with you, Peter, though you have denied me and abandoned me at a moment when you had a choice, you went the other way, I'm calling you back. There are people in this room who think that their abandonment of Jesus over an intellectual challenge or a moral choice is permanent. That somehow it has injured you beyond repair. That you made a decision that you knew was wrong and you left the path the Father gave you, knowing all the time you were walking away from Jesus, and you did it anyway, and now you think it's over for you, and it's permanent, and you'll never be who you used to be. And, and Jesus is teaching us through Peter that there's a way back home for you for full restoration in the family of God and your relationship with Christ. You can come back. I stepped out of my door this morning early. The mist was moving through the neighborhood. I walked on a pad of mustard-colored pollen from the oak trees. As soon as I got in the street, I caught this wonderful scent carried on a gentle breeze. I turned to 180 because the breeze was at my back and I thought, where are these blossoms? I got to find them. And I actually went down the street sniffing blossoms, looking for the fragrance that was carried on the breeze. It was, it was beautiful. It was intriguing. It was alluring to me. I found a whole cascading pile of white blossoms, but the fragrance wasn't there. I have yet to find the fragrance that came to me on the breeze in the street. But I experienced the same kind of thing when I walk with Jesus on the Via Dolorosa. It's the way of suffering. There is sorrow, there is pain, there is heartache, there is blood, and there is death in this path that he is walking. But there's also something beautiful and it will come to you if you look, if you watch him as he dies. You will catch the fragrance that will stir your heart. It is the perfume of faithfulness, loyalty, and loving kindness. Here is the one who so beautifully demonstrates 
that even in pain and suffering and trial and abandonment and betrayal and loss, he will not desert us. He will hold true. He will stay the course. He will go the road until he can say it is finished. Not because it is pleasant for him or good for him, but because it is necessary for Peter and James and John, though their faithlessness was not fatal on this day. Our Lord's faithlessness would have been. Their loyalty did not permanently separate them from God. But if he had not remained true, they would have had no way to the Father. Here is faithfulness beyond comprehension in the midst of the sorrow that is indescribable. Our Savior Jesus bearing the cross upon his back because it is the right thing. The cup his father gave him and the necessary remedy for our sin. You're supposed to see it when you look at Calvary. The beauty that is there in the man of sorrows who died for you. He wanted you at the table. He wanted to make the way for you to the Father's house. So he held true all the way. And he took your abandonment and everything else that went wrong with your life and he scooped it up and he descended into the darkness. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Bow with me, please. This is our beautiful Savior. You need to know him personally. Receive him as Lord. Trust completely in the work he did at the cross for your sin. Believe that he is God's son and the Savior of the world. This remedy alone cures your sin problem, relieves you of the guilt and shame of past mistakes and failures and even abandonment of those you love. You need this remedy in your life, and you can have it by confessing your sin and receiving Christ as Savior and Lord. Will you do it? Holy Spirit, do your work in every heart. Heal the one who's been abandoned. Help them to know you are always faithful and true. Draw the one who's been far away. Help them to know that their true life is in you. Do your work in us, we pray. Master and Savior, 
In Jesus' name, amen.